Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. My guest today is Vincent Nappi. That last name is spelled N-A-P-P-I. You can see his work at vincentnappi.com and from there you can find his fashion and graphic tea business at Noir Inc., which we will discuss in this interview. He is extremely prolific in the production of his artwork, and at any given point he will have stacks and stacks of his drawings and paintings surrounding him with his accompanying reference, which he often and most likely produces himself. Let's get into it. Vincent, you are one of the most prolific artists or creators of any kind that I know. So tell us a little bit about that, meaning where does that come from? Were you born that way? Did you work to get that way? Uh, well, first, you're very kind. Uh, B, th- uh, you know, thank you for having me on the show because the previous episodes have been great and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, and C, it's all George Pratt's fault. Um, that rascal. Yeah, you know, so that's I lay the blame squarely at his feet uh, for for shaming me as a teenager by showing me how prodigious a person could be in one's output. And uh, I blame him. And he's an interesting guy. And for those of you that did not catch the name, it's George Pratt. And he is very prolific. It's interesting because he'll go a month without doing any type of artwork except in his class and then all of a sudden you turn around two weeks later and he's got 30 paintings so he just like just attacks it when he when he begins to do it yeah he's he's pretty scary i I mean you know i could talk about him for an entire podcast but uh you know it might be boring for him well that's my plan i'm going to (laughs) i don't want to turn this into the george pratt podcast this has got to be about uh about this conversation what happens if you wake up in the morning and you don't feel like taking that cap off the ink bottle and getting dirty and cleaning brushes? What happens on those days? Because we all have those days. Uh, I do it anyway. <laughs> A very good, simple, articulate answer. So how do you slide into it? Do you just jump in or do you say, well, I'm just going to go into the studio and see what happens? Well, I like to, for, for a lot of the fashion stuff, a lot of that comes from reference that I've pulled from all over the place. So I try and have a few things that I know I can dive into and, and draw from first thing. And uh, So you always have ju- plenty of reference laying around to stimulate you. I try to, yeah. I try to. Uh, and then I just dive in. I try. I don't think about it. And that's probably what saves my butt because... You stop to think about anything, you're liable not to do it. So, I agree, and I've talked uh, before on this podcast that when left alone, the mind will always turn negative. It, it's just, that's human nature. I don't know where it comes from. But if your body is doing something and you get your mind engaged, then you get stimulated, you get excited, you have a goal and you end up working, and you trick yourself maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, action really is the the most important part of anything. And you could take that to art. You could apply that to absolutely everything else. But, uh, you know, if you've uh, if you put your feet on the ground, you get to step and you'll get to where you got to go. And if you get that pen and you put it to paper, eventually you'll make a picture. I walked into a classroom situation one time and there was a very good overachieving student that later went on to work in the uh, animation industry, so this was no slouch. And he was leaning back in his chair, had his arms behind his head, and I said, "Uh, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm just thinking about what I should do. And I said, well, pick up a pencil and start doing something, (laughs) (laughs) whether it's related to that or not. And And it really worked for him. He's like, man, I was just, I was stuck in my head. I couldn't, I couldn't get past this nothingness that was there. So 
his stimulation was actually physically doing something, which always works. I love that. Uh, I'm sure you know this quote, that Picasso quote, where he's like, inspiration, you know, inspiration will find you, but it's got to find you while you're working. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I've never heard that. Yeah. The, or some, the muse will find you, but she has to find you working. That's a great idea. Like that. Well, we touched on the fashion part of your work, but I'm going to back up before that. And I don't know if it's years or months or many years, but tell us first about your first published, uh, is it a comic? Is it a graphic novel? You, you tell us what it was. Oh boy. Uh, let's see. Well, way back in the day when, uh, I was still in Kansas city, you, you gave me the punt in the butt to finish my first, uh, graphic novel. And that one was self-published and I didn't, uh, I didn't do too much with it. It kind of got out to friends and family and this, that, and the third, but I didn't push that one. Uh, but then I got approached to do a little mini series for IDW. Uh, and that was called Victory City. So that was four issues that they then released as a trade, but that but, was, but yeah, that, that was a comic book. But that magazine, that comic book came from the first one that you did. If you didn't complete the first one, the second one would have not have happened. Yeah. That was sort of the, uh, you know, that was the portfolio. It's like, well, I can, I've already done this once. You can, you can trust me to do the job again. What is IDW? Uh, they're a publisher. For comics? Yes. Black and white, color, graphic novels, what do they do? Ooh, they do all sorts of things. Uh, they, I think they tend to handle, this was the only book I did with them, but they handle creator-owned properties from what I understand. It was the, the writer that dealt with them. I didn't deal with them personally. So it was his story, but your images? Yes. Who, who said yes or no? Who was the art director? Uh, well, the writer was essentially the art director. His name is Keith Carmack, a really nice guy. And he gave me pretty much full and free reign to to do what I needed to do to get the book done, which was great. So when he just signed off on character designs and, you know, we talk about certain things in the layout stage, you know, what would work best visually to tell the story. But other than that, he was pretty hands off. And did, did you do any thumbnails or any, what you said oh, yeah. concept um, or character development, but uh, did you do a thumbnail page of everything that was okayed by someone? Oh yeah. I would do layouts, which I th I'm pretty, pretty sure is standard across the industry, but I'm, I'm really not in the industry. Uh, but yeah, I did a, all layouts for each issue. I would send them over to Keith he would take a look, he'd go, okay, cool, this is great, maybe we can flip this around, and then I'd get the go-ahead from him, and I'd move on and I'd do the book. In that industry, oftentimes there is a penciler, there's a layout person, there's an inker, and there's a letterer. Did you do all of that? I handled the pencils, the inks, and the colors. So the lettering was done by digital means? Uh, yeah, for certain parts of it, it was a handwritten font, and in other places it was just a, a regular plain Jane font, but I didn't handle the lettering for that. Uh, oh, man, who handled it? I forget her name. Uh, Jessie Adrignola, I think her name was. But uh, she, did a, she did a cool job. It looked good. So there were four issues of that particular comic? Yes. I know you to be an extremely curious person. Did you grow up that way or was that something that you accrued later? Where, where does this curiosity come from? I guess it was, you know, my, my father's a pretty curious guy. Uh, my grandfather's a pretty curious guy. Uh, you know, I grew up around people that like to read books, uh, <laughs> interested in all kinds of different things. And I picked it up from them. So I blame them. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a good lineage to come from. At what point do you think you were aware of what we now call and have always called 
storytelling? What tender age were you when you became involved with, wow, that's a good story or that's a, that's a story well told. That's a really interesting question. Uh, I don't believe I ever looked at it in any kind of a formal way until I was uh, doing comic work. Because, you know, to tell a story visually, you have to sort of break down what makes a story effective. And that makes you look at all kinds of media in a different way. You know, you start to watch movies in a different way. You start to read books in a different way because you understand the skeleton of whatever it is that you're looking at reading. But as a kid, I don't think I thought about storytelling in quite such an in-depth way. You just sort of enjoy things. And it's not until you become a... When did things click? I mean, while you were doing your first comic or while you were thinking about your first comic? Yeah. And I'd say that they clicked in a pretty unconscious way and that I didn't I didn't labor over it. I just sort of, uh, you know, you I figured that if you if you read enough <laughs> or if you if you see enough good movies, you sort of subconsciously understand how a story should be told, which isn't to say that there's not a deep amount of craft that goes into learning how to tell one in an effective way. But uh, what I'm trying to say is, you know, I stumbled around like a bum until I, and I fell into a story without much hard thinking on my part, but it seemed to have worked out. Well, it's common knowledge that people that read a lot usually speak very well. They they write very well because it just comes into your head and whether it's osmotic or not, but that's just uh, a manifestation of people that deal with words and language. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I mean, if, if you, you spend time around people that are good at any one particular thing, you know, it's, you're likely to get good at that thing too. You know, if you read a lot, you're going to pick up the structure of a story, how to string together a sentence <laughs> that sounds very simple, uh, but putting together a good sentence, uh, Stephen King always says, you know, early in his career, uh, he would worry and, and think about and write and rewrite and rewrite the first sentence of a paragraph for days sometimes because he just oh, needed that setup. Yeah, it's a pain in the neck. I, I always liked the idea of trying to do something as simply as you can that old sort of Hemingway uh, way of working where if you can strip everything down to its barest components it's hard to screw it up if you get rid of all the fluff you're left with only the stuff that works and that's the stuff that has an impact and is effective communication you mentioned Hemingway and a lot of times I will ask friends and acquaintances the question Steinbeck or Hemingway? Because I think you can tell a lot about people and their personality by which one of those authors that they, <laughs> that they like more. And of course, if they say who, then you need, then you know all you need to know. Well, then you leave, you know, you never speak to that person again. Uh, Hemingway, obviously. Well, see, I'm the opposite. I am Steinbeck through and through, but that's okay. We can still <laughs> well, be friends. Well, but we could both agree on Henry Miller, though. That's the oh most my important. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> yes. Henry Miller. Okay, kids. There you go. Look that one up online. Sending you all on a beautiful rabbit trail to uh, find some <laughs> of the greatest pros of the 20th century. Exactly. Exactly. So every time I read Steinbeck, and I've read what I call the Holy Trilogy many times, it mm. starts with uh, Tortilla Flat and Cannery Row and... Uh, finally, Sweet Thursday, and they were written a decade apart. The first one wow. was in 1934. I think the next one was uh, 44, and the other one may have been 55 or 56. But every time he writes this sentence, like, uh, you know, Doc opened the door and looked down the street, I keep asking myself, what does that mean? What's he trying to say? <laughs> what does that really mean? There's got to be something more to it. So I'm not really sure if that's true or not. I think those books are great, great reflections of the world at large, especially at the time. So sometimes I turn Absolutely. my brain off and just read it and try to get my brain to shut up. <laughs> 
So I, I ask you about when you started thinking about storytelling. So I'll interject a quick story. When I was a kid, I loved comics. I spent all my money on comics. And a lot of times I would go home and I would read them. And sometimes before I would read them, I would sit down in the, on the floor in our family room and I would just look at the pictures. I would page through to see if I could get the story before I actually read the words. And, mm-hmm. I, and I don't think I was consciously trying to test someone's storytelling ability or my storytelling interpretation. I think it was just entertainment, but I really enjoyed doing that. Have you ever tried to do that or, or watched a movie with no sound? Yeah, that's a lot of fun, isn't it? If it's, it's uh, if it's a well-made movie, yes. Yeah, that's that's the key. That's the test. <laughs> if it's good, then it's yeah, it's entertaining. I, a hundred percent. I think that, uh, especially with the comic stuff that I've done, I n- didn't consider necessarily this. Well, you consider the script, but when laying things out, I always thought about it in terms of mime. Right? It has to read. The story has to read visually before you insert any words to explain it. I think that that goes back to, you know, saying things as simply as you can. You know, body language accounts for, how, I forget the percentage, but it's some ridiculous amount, uh, amount more than words do in human-to-human interaction. And that carries into entertainment, you know. A glance or a gesture can tell you so much more about a character or a scene than a mile of exposition. And a lot of times it's more effective and more interesting. If you had complete control over a comic, which you did in the first one that you published, what percentage of panels do you think is good to have text or dialogue? Does every panel need words or how, how many can you skip? I don't know. I've never broken it down to a ratio. I think if you can get rid of, uh, you know, if you could tell a comic completely silently, it'd be really cool. I think Mobius did that pretty well. I think a lot of artists have done that pretty well. Is he uh, oh, a man. big influencer with your work or in your mind? Uh, not quite. Not quite. Who was the, uh, who's the artist who did that ye- white, de- white uh, devil, yellow devil? What is that? that co- was that Milton Kniff or... Oh, man. Do you know the strip I'm talking about? Where is George Pratt when we need him? Yeah, because he'd be the one screaming right now. Oh, man. He'd pull it out of his <laughs> on his iPad as we speak. So it's White Devil, Yellow White Devil. Devil? Yes. And he's, hmm. the, he's, the, he's the example. He's the reason I'm bringing this up, because he always uses this as the example of uh, some of the ultimate form of nonverbal storytelling. All right. I just looked it up. Star-Spangled War Stories, White Devil, Yellow Devil, November 72. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, because it's set in World War II. It's, I just found it. I'm looking at the Alex Toth archives right ah, now. Ah, okay, Boom. it is you Alex win. Toth. You win. All right, cool. I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> so what do you like about that particular comic? Well, I mean, not even that one in particular, but just any any story that you can tell without having to use words. Well, I should back up. We just mentioned yeah. Alex Toth. So th- why I'm stupid for asking a question. <laughs> <laughs> I already answered it. Alex Toth. Okay. The, uh, yeah, the, the arch wizard of, uh, all comic making for, uh, yeah. So well, if there's I, anyone who knew how to tell a story, it'd be him. So when I was growing up, I loved weird war tales and creepy and eerie uh, Mad Magazine, uh, those were all before your time, but the people that you ended up looking at in your time were all influenced by all of these other people and all of these publications that I just mentioned because everything has a lineage. Oh, a thousand percent. A thousand percent. And I mean, man, those are all amazing uh, publications, creepy, eerie, war tale, you know, weird war tales and weird tales and all these things. Just uh, the amount of artists that they produced that have gone on to influence every generation since is incredible. The Tell us the title of that first comic that you did once more. The very first one, which, uh, which gentle listeners, Mr. Brent here had a very large part in helping me to create, mainly via giving me a 
kick in the butt to actually go and do it. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> it was called the Bordello Suckers Game. So, And was there any color involved in that? No, that was pure black and white. But the next one you did, which was titled what again? Uh, that was called Victory City. Now that had color, is that correct? Yeah, very limited. I, uh, I basically color-coded the for the different characters in the story so for one character the everything would be sort of a green cast for one character everything would be sort of blue for another would be red and that was just another visual cue to to guide people through the book was that because well well why was that i I mean did you come up with that idea on your own or was that um suggested to you uh, if I had my way, I would have just done it in black and white, because I love I love color, but I don't know that it's n- always necessary. I don't think that you always need it, and especially with sequential work, a lot of times I think it gets in the way of what the artist is trying to say with the work. I think you did a very gentle source of color with that. In other words, people could constantly see oh, here's the, here's the green panel, here's the red panel, here's whatever. So I, I think that was a, a good way to approach it. Yeah, just I tried to keep it very entirely monochromatic. You know, no, I didn't try and paint it, in other words. I tried to let the drawing do all the talking for me, and then whatever color I added on top uh, was left, you know, almost as a glaze, you know. Was it digital or was it? real actual traditional color painting on paper the color was all digital which i would do i'd probably do it a little bit differently today uh, but that's just because i know i have a better idea of what i'm doing your technique is energetic it's splashy and i don't mean flashy because flashy sounds like a negative term it's very energetic there's ink splattered there's scratches there's these freeform marks um, it's almost like i can i can see you trying to find the drawing underneath as you're working so where do you think um is that just your your natural point of view or did you work toward that end result yeah i think that style is isn't something you should chase I don't think that it's something you should consciously try and develop. I think that it's something that you come to by doing a lot of work. And the way that I do things now is very much, was initially very much influenced by, you know, the the mentors that I've had, both alive and, and dead, and looking at the way that they work. But over time, it's it's just sort of becomes your handwriting. And that's how I feel about it. It's just a, it's an extension of my hand, you know? It's just the way that I do it. How important is a sketchbook to you now, and how important was it when you were beginning? Oh, man. Sketchbooks, at the beginning in particular, are the most important part of your entire development, in Why? my humble opinion. Why? In my humble opinion. <laughs> <laughs> to which you're entitled. Oh, man. Because you need to be drawing, but I got this from you, you know, you got to be drawing all the time. you got to be drawing all the time. If you're a student, if you're just starting out, you need to be looking at the world around you and recording it. Don't worry about getting it right. Don't worry about detail. Don't worry about making an exact representation of whatever it is that you're looking at, but you need to draw all the time. And keeping a sketchbook on you just makes that very easy. Uh, because, you know, you have this great practice print of, you know, draw your drink or <laughs> pull out your sketchbook. And, what are you drinking tonight? And I've suddenly done that there's a, a few times. Yeah, you know, it's a good practice. Helps you to remember what you had the night before. I drink uh, a lot yeah. of milk. <laughs> because strong bones are important for that drawing arm. So. <laughs> so you are skating around the word, perhaps, interpretation. You're saying, okay. don't worry about getting it right. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what do you think about the word interpretation when working in a sketchbook? I like it. I think that interpretation is the perfect word to use because that's everything that you're going to do. You're not, uh, you know, 
even the most accomplished artist in the world, uh, if they copied a photograph, uh, you know, pixel for pixel, it would still be a drawing of a photograph. It'd be an interpretation of a thing. It's not the thing. You know, if you draw a tree, you're interpreting what a tree looks like when it's passed through your eyeballs down to your hand onto the page. Uh, you can't you can't perfectly capture the subject with your art. All you can hope to do is create something interesting and use the motif, whatever it is that you're looking at, to help you get there. I always thought that if you gave 20 artists a camera mm-hmm. and took them out on the beach and said, record this sunset, you would have fabulous images, competent photography, and interesting things to look at. If you gave those same 20 artists a big box of art supplies and said, all right, go out on the beach and interpret this sunset, I think the differences would be vastly different. And you know I love photographers. Oh, yeah. I love photography. I think photography uh, is very important. But there's something about something that you squeeze out of your hand onto uh, some type of media and uh, do it on an iPad, do it on an iPhone. But it's using really using your mind and some tools to interpret and make things happen, I think is really important. Yeah, I mean, and the tool doesn't matter, you know? I mean, if well we're talking said. about, yeah, if we're talking about uh, drawing and painting or using pastels or a burnt stick or, you know, your child's crayon, it doesn't really matter. You're going to, it passes through you. The medium is not the uh, the important thing necessarily. It's It's what you bring to the piece through your, years of practice and looking and observing the brain is the greatest art supply absolutely absolutely now now i know you've been doing some digital work also did you come to that because you thought it was interesting or you felt you had to uh well i avoided it like the plague for years as you well know Uh, (laughs) i I remember those days (laughs) i thought it was heresy uh, I thought that Wacom should be, you know, burned in a large pile. Everyone should return to the the brush and the oil paint and the turpentine, but it's not to be. Uh, yeah, I dove in for client work uh, and to mess around for myself just to see what I could do. Uh, and How did you start digitally? On a, on a laptop or on a desktop? What, what were you doing? I'm still using the same laptop that uh, you saw me with last so i have I've had the same the same macbook so am i yeah it's great i am i pray every day that uh, it lasts another 20 years but yeah this thing is eight years and chugging and it still runs photoshop pretty well so i just have a bigger monitor that i hook it up to does your digital to does your digital work look the same or similar or if 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 i you know if i just if you posted something online of, you know, drawing A and drawing B, would I be able to tell if one was digital or not? I don't know. Maybe. You especially, because you're a genius. Uh, you know, I forgot maybe, that. Yeah, you know, I have to remind you. Um, but I don't know. For certain things, yes, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the tools that you're using and how easy they are to replicate digitally. So, but it's not like you're trying to do one thing traditionally and completely something else tradi- or uh, digitally. No, I see them very much the same way. I try and treat them the same way. I think that 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 helps me get over the fact that you know I'm, I'm there's this disconnect between uh, the screen and the stylus that you're holding in your hand. You know, if. Uh, if you get rid of thinking about it as a digital tool and you just start to treat your painting, your digital painting, the same way that you would a traditional painting, you can get some interesting effects. And I, I try and use brushes that are very textural. I try and take the polish out of digital work as much as I can to have it look as if I had painted it in oils or acrylic or watercolor. Uh, but I don't, I don't do a ton of drawing strictly drawing digitally i find that it's uh 
I don't know. It's not as intuitive. It's I can't get quite as fine a control over my line work uh, as I can with you know my a pen in my hand. So does that mean that when you work digitally, you you go more for the tonal qualities? Yeah, I'm trying to treat it more as a series of shapes. You know, uh, always always keeping in mind your uh, maxim of you know treating every painting like a puzzle for a dumb guy. So keep things big and simple and then narrow in and polish things up as I go along. For those of you listening, there is a wonderful artist out there and business owner and illustrator extraordinaire by the name of Robert McGank. And Vincent knows this person also. And the reason I mention his name is he was a very accomplished illustrator, editorial, had a lot of fast turnarounds, deadlines, illustrated for many, many years in a uh, traditional fashion. And one day he started looking at the computer and thought, I could probably do that. And he completely switched over from traditional medium to being a digital artist and no one knew. <laughs> That's he, kind of the dream, isn't it? He, he was such a good artist yeah. that the medium didn't matter. So that's my point of that story is he was a good artist and it didn't matter that he switched over to being digital. And like I said, his clients didn't even know. I'm sure it came up in conversation. So uh, I think that's what I like about your digital work is I have to really pay attention and look at it and almost play a game with myself and say, oh, I think this is a digital piece. Hmm, okay. Oh, then I'm, I'm, I'm winning, I'm winning digital then, if that's the case. <laughs> so tell us. Yeah, go ahead. Well, so tell us now about, I won't say your new endeavor, but let's okay. call it your latest endeavor, which actually started quite a while ago, but after your comic publications, you got interested yeah. in uh, what? Uh, well, I stumbled into fashion illustration and and that whole world by accident uh <laughs> that was that was because i was doing warm-ups for uh, my first graphic novel sucker's game and i was trying to get into the the characters of the book i thought well you know a few of these guys are clothes horses and i wanted to learn more about you know well, how they're going to present themselves they how were always cloth... quite dapper yes so you know how does clo how does uh, cloth fold uh, wh what kind of proportions am i going to be playing with and that stuff is has always been an interest of mine but i hadn't really bothered to to explore it in in art uh, and i just started doing these drawings as warm ups and uh, you know, over time they accumulated into a substantial, substantial pile, uh, piles, that's plural now, but. Well, again, I saw those piles and you were cranking things out. You had this cavalier attitude about, it was more about producing work over and over and over without worrying about perfection, but just worried about the interpretation. And I think you were you were playing, you were having fun and creating. Absolutely. Uh, I think having no commercial consideration to start helps with that. <laughs> well, yeah, you didn't even have a, a goal. You were just, you were, uh, what do you call it? Feeding the, feeding the, um, the something crocodile. Tell me. Oh yeah. The content crocodile. You got to keep that thing fed, man, or it'll, it'll bite your ass. So now is content spelled with a K? In this case, absolutely. Okay. can only be spelled with a K. Content crocodile. Remember that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you were, Captain Hook. It's, it's always following you. Yeah. You were warming up and entertaining yourself, and were, what type of media exploration was happening? Well, that work was all pen and ink, uh, and that's, that's primarily what I've, that's what I've stuck with. All these years is pen and ink. Uh, oil painting is great, and I love it. Uh, but I, I really haven't done much of it since since uh, we were all sharing that studio out in Kansas City. So, 
Well, were you using one pen and one type of ink? To start, it was dip pens. So, you know, I, I caught the, like, a, I blame George Pratt again for all of my good and bad habits artistically. And, we can uh, blame I, him for a lot. I blame him every day. Uh, and I'll let him know next time I see him again that I, I blame him for, for a lot more than he thinks that he should be blamed for. Uh, but initially it was just dip pens. Uh, so, you know, you get a nib and you burn the tip and you dip it in a vat of... Why do you burn the tip? Uh, what, what do you define burning the tip? Yeah, well, you get a lighter and, you you know, you kind of, you're roasted for a second or two to get the oil off of the nib. And so it's supposed where does to, the oil come from? I'm asking a lot of stupid questions here, but wh- why I is there oil on the nib? From I, the manufacturing... I, I guess, yeah, I guess just to keep it from rusting in the packaging. Okay, that makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, again, this is a, a an old wives' tale that I inherited from George, and then just continued to practice. So, but he he taught me that yeah, you should burn your nibs because they pack them in oil to prevent them from rusting when they ship them out, and it's supposed to help them keep a longer draw on the ink. You know, meaning it'll hold more ink before it runs out, and you have to dip it again. Well, that makes sense because if there was oil on the ink, it would be like oil in a skillet and the ink would slip around, slide around or run off like, yeah. you know, an egg in, a, in an oily skillet. It's supposed to slide around, but you want that ink to remain on that pen nib so that it can be pulled off as you're drawing your line across the paper. That's right. That's absolutely right. Uh, and so I started with... I was using Sumi ink for a long time, which Sumi ink is cool because it's uh, live. They say it's live, meaning you can reactivate it. You know, if you put down a big dark area and you hit it with a wash, it'll bleed, which means you can get some interesting half tones and cool effects. Uh, what happens after it's dried? Uh, it, you can still reactivate it. If you agitate it, you can still get it to bleed off into a halftone. Uh, but that's why I stopped using it. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't like the way that it dried, which may be heresy to people that love Sumi ink. But Sumi ink tends to dry very, and it has streaks. You know, you can see all your brush strokes. Well, if you're trying to work in layers, then you don't want to reactivate the medium. You want it to stay where it is, go to the next layer, etc. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you can't, it's, it gets tough to hit it with white acrylic or gouache or anything like that uh, because it'll, it'll just turn to mud if you, if you attack it too much. And then, uh, so to fix that, I started to work with FW Acrylic Ink. So FW Acrylic Ink is exactly what it sounds like. It's acrylic ink, meaning that it dries flat. It, uh, It's pretty viscous, uh, and it's very opaque. You don't need a lot of it to lay down a very flat, dark area. And you can work on top of it, and it's not going to bleed or get agitated and uh, muddy up your color if you decide to throw some white acrylic on top to correct an area. Uh, I like it because what you see is what you get. You know, the final product doesn't have to be tweaked all that much once you scan it. Uh, to keep the the darks clean and unified, and uh, and then I switched over from using a dip pen with nibs, and I picked up a parallel pen, which is sort of a calligraphy pen. You know, it's meant to be used for calligraphy, and I love the chisel tip and how you can get super sharp fine lines and very thick, crisp, flat, uh, fat lines. When did you make the distinction of, all right, now I'm through with this comic uh, that I did for this manufacturer, this publisher, and now I've got this entire, practically room full of uh, this fashion illustration that you had been warming up with. When did you make the connection that maybe that's something that you could pursue as well? Uh, Well, I made that connection mostly because I just kept doing it. It just became, it became more and more of an interest. That entire world became much more compelling to me the more that I looked at it. You know, this is sort of a tangent, but drawing is a great way to learn. 
because it really forces you to stop and look at a subject and examine it and figure it out. You know, if you're staring at something uh, for days and days on end and recording it and observing it and interpreting it, uh, you know, it stands to reason that you're probably pretty interested and you're going to develop an even greater appreciation for the subject just through repeat contact and exposure. Well, and I, I enjoyed looking at a lot of that early work, as I do now your current work, because when you start to analyze it, it's all of our favorite things. It's the human form, it's portraiture, it's texture, it's drapery, it's clothing, it's everything. And you get to design the page, which you are very good at. You get to design the space that these figures are in or not. Each piece, each illustration is, uh, I, I try and keep it self-contained. So I mean, a lot of the fashion stuff, they're just figures on a page, right? But I don't think they need very much else to make the impact that they make. I think uh, it's sort of a very Egon Schiele way of thinking about, uh, you know, drawing and painting. The figure can have the impact. You know, you don't need to have a full-blown composition in order to make a successful picture. You can focus on one thing at a time. Vincent, you have a company, and I want you to tell us the name of it and what it is. So the, uh, the brand that I've got is called Noir Inc. It is a graphic apparel business. It all started when uh, I realized that, well, I'm designing graphics and illustrations for these different apparel brands. Uh, why don't I just do it for myself? And instead of having art direction being put at me, I could just art direct myself. It was, it's, it's a vehicle. The way I look at it is it's a vehicle for me to take all the things that I love, all the things that I'm interested in, mash them together and put them on apparel and sell them. Okay, and noir means dark or black, right? Mm -hmm. And the way you spell ink is I-N-C as incorporated. It's a double entendre for the word ink as in I-N-K because you work with ink. Yeah, it's, it's a big bad pun. So, you know. <laughs> it's a big one. Yeah, it's, it's a really bad one. So that's, that's, the, whole, <laughs> that's the whole title of the, of the brand. So what if I decide I'm going to start my own graphic apparel business tomorrow? What yeah. is, besides having great content, what was your first step? What did you have to do to get the ball rolling? Uh, well, there were a few false starts because I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and I didn't quite realize the amount of, you can't just create stuff and throw it out into the ether and hope that people like it or buy it. There has to be a bit more thought behind it. And all of that is something I'm still learning about and fine tuning myself because I'm certainly no expert. But I like what you said just then, because there are some people that overthink and they never get anything done. And you and I, I think, are the kind of people that think, well, you know, there's no perfect time to do anything. Just do something. Do it. And that's what you did. You did it and started learning. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, yeah, you're absolutely right, Brent. You know, that's, that's the only way you're going to do it, is to do it. There's no de deliberation. There's no, uh, you know, prognostication. You just got to get your feet on there and get to stepping and figure it out as you go along. How many products do you have? Oh, let's see. Well, right now I've got a bunch. Uh, I have a, quite a few different designs that I offer, uh, which I'm actually going to be taking down out of the shop very soon because I'm getting ready to push out the new new collection for the, for the colder months. Let's see. About, so do you have T-shirts or hoodies or pants? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty simple product offering at the moment. So right now I've got tees, I've got hoodies, uh, sweatshirts. I can do mugs if I want to. Uh, I can even do iPhone cases, which I've only done a few of for, you know, for friends and family. I actually haven't sold those to the, the public at large. But I try and keep it pretty trim, you know, sort of lean and mean. This way I can 
keep a better handle on the product offerings. When you're doing a design for let's let's just stick with a um, a white T-shirt. So you think, yeah. all right, I'm going to do a design for a white T-shirt. Are you are you just trying to do something that you think looks good, or are you trying to think about line weight? What's going to actually transfer to the fabric? What's going to work? What isn't going to work? How does that work in your mind? Those are all considerations I have. Uh, I think a lot of times as well about how is this going to trans how is this going to translate into being printed on colors other than white uh because so you offer other things besides a a white tee yeah i mean i i I try and offer everything else in black as well uh, because people tend to like wearing black shirts more than they like white shirts i have no idea why i think that that's you know they're heathens but so be it i was born Uh, in a black t-shirt (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, you're my favorite, Ethan. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to consider different things when I'm prepping the files for print. Uh, because what will work on white won't work on black. Why? It's basically just a reversal, isn't it? No, because I don't treat them as reversals. I try and treat them as, uh, I try and keep the integrity of the image I kind of feel that just reversing the line work looks, it can look okay, but uh, it's not my favorite way to do things. If you have a design that you like that is going to be a black image on a white t-shirt, and now you wake up one morning and you say, all right, well, I need to make this design work for a dark shirt. Uh, Do you start all over? Do you actually draw with white on a black surface? Oh, this goes into Photoshop alchemy. I have to take the design into Photoshop and I really just start to play around uh, with using color to hold the drawing. I'm not quite sure how else to describe it, Uh, but I think I I try and think of printmaking, right? Like turn of the century printmaking uh, and how they'd have to hold the line in a field of color. I'm starting to get it, though, because I can see now that if you just went into Photoshop and inverted the drawing, it's going to look like a negative on a piece of film years ago. And yeah. that's, that's not what it's supposed to be. You, you could have a, all of a sudden you've got a, um, a black face with a white eye in it, and that's not what you're trying to do. Right, and that's what most people will do because it's easy. You know, because I like to make things hard for myself, I don't do that. So I, well, I that's, where the, that's where the quality is, though, because you're thinking ahead and you're making it function the way it's pleasing to the eye and visually correct. Yeah. Well, here's here's another way to think about it. I try and turn them into vignettes, if that if that helps to make the the picture clearer in your mind. But if I'm printing so, yes. on black. I'm trying to treat the drawing almost like a miniature illustration on a piece of paper, like a, a classic uh, old you know, Cornwell vignette or something where you've got simple subject matter, but it's framed in an interesting way in a space, but it's, it's not a, a, a square frame. It's just sort of a, an irregularly shaped composition. Well, you're designing the space around the figure so that it looks pleasing and it's designed on the actual, uh, what do you call the front of the t-shirt, the placard or the, the live area? Yeah, live area works. I feel like I'm not explaining this very well. Uh, let's see, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to use the, the negative space to describe the drawing. And I do that through, uh, you know, through the use of black, white, gray, and color. I can, I can see how it would be a difficult situation to do, let alone explain. Why do you do the fashion work? What, what is it inside of you that, that all of a sudden said, you know what? Yes, I have all these drawings. What made you think that, that they should go on apparel? Because that's a pretty big leap. Well, I was being hired to do that for, the, for other people. Oh, so, that's right. You you mentioned yeah. that. Sorry. No, no, it's fine. It was it was my decision to do to create noir ink was tied to the uh, you know the fact that it 
doing this sort of stuff constituted, you know, a portion of my freelance work. And I find the fashion industry to be very interesting. Uh, it's a whole other art form, and it's one that I really enjoy and am passionate about and fascinated by. I thought what I had... Part of it, what part of it really captures you in, in the category of being fascinated with it? Because I don't know anything about it, so why... What could you say to make me get interested? Well, clothes are, well, in, in this maybe is not related to Noir Inc., but clothes and fashion, it's psychology, but it's external psychology, right? You, you use your appearance to create a, a particular impression. You're using the, the visuals available to you to tell a story. It's storytelling. All right, we're going to loop it back to comic books. So fashion is storytelling in the same way that lines and colors on a page is storytelling in a comic book. Fashion is storytelling in real life, uh, in three dimensions. It has a practical uh, effect on the way that you move through the world, the way that you're perceived, the way that you perceive others. And I've always found that very interesting. well, when you say it that way, now I'm fascinated. <laughs> I get it now. It's, yeah, it's, it's storytelling. So, but Noir Inc. is, you know, it's graphic apparel. It's not as if it's high, it's not haute couture, it's not beautiful tailoring, it's not dressmaking, it's not, uh, any, it's not anything that's particularly esteemed, but it's graphic apparel, it's streetwear, it's uh, pop culture, it's... Oh, it's all these things. Uh, well, that's I know another there's, terrible explanation. I know there's images on your graphic tees. Are there words also? Sometimes there are. They're more meant to evoke a feeling. You know, it's it's sort of you're you're painting with words. You're trying to get people to think. You're not spelling things out. You're creating a story. You're creating something that someone will engage with when they look at it. In a in a a mental way. So if I'm walking down the street and I see someone with a Noir Inc. t-shirt, is there an attitude about that shirt or an attitude about the person that would wear them? I think so. And this is, this is sort of part of a larger conversation about streetwear and fashion and all kinds of things that are probably not very interesting or relevant to the people that are going to listen to this. But, you know, what you wear says something about you. In your estimation, what makes a good design for Noir Inc.? What are you looking for visually? Ooh, that is a good question. I have to get some kind of a charge off of it. I don't have any other words for it than that. I have to, I have to be sparked some way by either a phrase or subject, an idea. Uh, you know, a lot of these designs... Uh, a lot of them are from reference that I've shot myself. Some of them are interpreted from old photographs or just found reference that I've picked up through the years of trolling through the internet and books and things like that. Uh, and so it's it's sort of doing a remix of several different things and putting them together into a graphic and using that graphic on the medium of clothing to, to tell a story, to evoke an emotion, to get someone interested. What if we coined a phrase and said, a good design to you must tickle your intellectual fancy? Yeah, I think that works. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of stupid designs out there, though. That's the problem. <laughs> That that probably look good and tickle other people's fancy, I suppose. I guess so. I mean, a lot of it, too, was me uh, looking at what is going on in, you know, fashion with a capital F and how they use graphics and art and being really disappointed with what I see. Uh, because, I mean, I look at this stuff all day long. It's sort of the, the, the business that I deal with on a day-to-day basis. And... When I see these large houses offering really subpar visuals or just things that are 
they're dumb. You know what I mean? Like they're they're using there there's not a lot of thought put into the imagery that gets used in many cases, or there is, but it's just not of great quality. I thought, you know what, I could do something better, and so that's that was also part of the decision to do it was saying I can I can create a better design than what I'm looking at. Has the work that you've started with changed as compared to the new? line of work that you're going to put up uh, momentarily or in the next few weeks it's a different theme it's this i mean it's all it's all my work so it all you know it looks like it came from me but it's a different sort of subject matter so i'm actually uh this next batch of stuff is sort of cowboy themed (laughs) i've been seeing a little bit of that on social media and didn't know where it was headed yeah it's a lot of it is me thinking on paper for what I'm going to use for this next, these next few designs. Vincent, what part does social media play in Noir Inc., if any? Social media is everything for Noir Inc. Uh, it's everything for my freelance career. Love it or hate it, you got to know how to use it and at least be halfway competent at it in order to get your name out, get your product out in today's day and age. Well, how many social media outlets are you involved with? I mostly use Instagram. A few years ago, Facebook was the thing, but it's really not anymore. I don't, I don't have Facebook ads figured out yet, so I don't use that particular uh, part of the platform to the way that I'd want to. So most of my effort goes through Instagram and sort of attracting organic engagement by... Uh, you know, feeding that content crocodile and sharing work. Instagram is much better at finding those uh, new followers than Facebook. And we've all heard and read many, many things about the algorithms that Facebook is doing that's basically destroying itself from the inside. Unfortunately, Instagram was purchased by Facebook, so we'll all have to stand by (laughs) and see where this whole thing goes. But I agree, Instagram is everything for new followers finding those niche people that you never would have on Facebook. Yeah, I think that Facebook is great when for the audience that you already have. Instagram is the thing for finding new people. So Facebook you can or you know like I was talking about before the ad platform, you know, if you if you take the time to learn it, you can you can drive traffic anywhere you want if you're willing to spend the money. When you're dropping a hundred bucks to make five, well, that's when it really starts to make sense. But you have to learn to you you have to lose the cash and learn how to play with the system first. And as far as the system, and this is conjecture on my part because I've never talked to somebody from Facebook, but a lot of people are disenchanted with the Facebook ads. And again, this is hearsay. This isn't fact. But supposedly once you buy an ad, then you are extremely throttled by the algorithms and they make you spend more and more and more money to reach the same amount of people. Whereas if you never buy an ad and it's a private account, then it goes out to your usual people. And now even that's in question. So uh, there's no, there's no true answer right now. It's kind of muddy right now. But Instagram, I think, is better. I believe that, uh, and I mean, you know, you also you can use the ad manager on Facebook to place ads in Instagram. So that's that's another part of the functionality that uh, I don't know that people understand. Uh, you have to use the ad manager in Facebook to even run ads in Instagram itself. But that's a paid so. account, though, a paid professional account, isn't it? Uh, well, it's, it's only paid if you're paying, like you can have a business account and not, you don't have to pay any kind of subscription fee to have a business account for either Instagram or Facebook. But you do for an ad though. Yeah. If you want to run an ad, then yes, you're spending money. So that's, that's the trick is you have to, you have to get a handle on targeting and really learn who your audience is, but you can certainly drive a lot of traffic when you're willing to spend the cash to do so. Now, a couple of years ago, maybe even less than that, there were several iPhone apps. We'll just call them apps Mm because I'm sure they're on Android. And supposedly 
you could make a post in Instagram and hold on to it. And this app would decide when the ultimate time was to release that when most people that you were trying to attract would be online and they would see it. And then all of a sudden people are complaining about that and customer service with the app and it wasn't working. Do you know anything about those such apps? No, but they sound pretty useful. <laughs> well, if and when they work, that that became yeah. the problem, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you can never really understand what's going on in the back end of either uh, of Facebook or Instagram. You just sort of have to play with the rules that they set out for you to play with. There were pro uh, sites like Social Blade. Uh, this is this is related tangentially, where you could see essentially where you could figure out which part of uh, an account's engagement was real. You could see exactly how many followers they had. You could track the growth of their account, this, that, and the third, uh, which was useful to uh, place, uh, you know, to do sort of paid placement with influencers on Instagram. But even things like Social Blade, websites like that have been getting knocked out of the loop by changes in algorithm. What about things like Hootsuite or Buffer for cross-posting to different platforms on a schedule. Have you ever used those? I have, oh, what is it called? I forget what the app is called. I have an app that I use that cross-posts. Uh, whatever I put on Instagram, it gets blasted to Facebook, which doesn't seem to do much for the engagement on Facebook, but it's still nice to have uh, content show up in two places at the same time, and uh, Twitter as well. How would we find you on Twitter and Instagram? Uh, Twitter's not very interesting. I don't really use Twitter. I think my, I think I don't even remember my handle on that, to be honest <laughs> with you. I just, it just blasts out content for me. Uh, my Instagram handles are Vincent underscore Nappy. So that's N-A-P-P-I. Uh, and for Noir Inc., the Instagram handle for that is Noir underscore Inc. So I-N-C. I-N-C, yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think social media now is what having a website was 20 years ago. Sorry to go that far back. But yeah. about that time, you had to have a website. You just needed one page. Because if you didn't have a website, it kind of made you look like you really weren't even trying or you were a cave person or something. And social media is that way now. You just have to do it. And whether you engage a lot, I don't know. But you have to at least be able to tell people that you're there. And I know you're there a lot. Yeah, for better or for worse. Uh, the, the ultimate goal is to just become so tremendously successful that I can throw my phone in a large body of water and never use it again. Uh, but until, <laughs> until that day. Yeah, good luck to all of us on that. <laughs> well, here's a, a side note for super nerds. I had a a friend of mine that was a futurist at one of the large international phone companies. And this person's job was to go in every day and look 5, 10, and 20 years into the future and try to figure out what was going on, especially in that industry, and how they could stay on top of things and maybe get ahead of the curve, if at all possible. And he told me one day about a year ago, Brent, enjoy your iPhone because in 10 years, we won't have them. And I said, nope, don't believe that. Sounds impossible. Mm. And he said, nope, there's, there's just going to be these screens everywhere that you can access. And he just kind of smiled, and there was this twinkle in his eye, and I thought, oh, man, that, that sounds so crazy and so far out there. It's probably going to happen. I mean, well, what did they, uh, they put the man on the moon with, uh, what, the equivalent of a calculator today? And now we have a device in our hands that is X amount of times more powerful than the entire computing power on the world, you know, in 1985. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. Technology is moving ahead and uh, some of it's pretty scary. Uh, hopefully we can figure out some of the, the problems. Uh, believe it or not, I go to a computer store on a rare occasion. Okay. Almost every day. Yes. And I was standing in line and there were, there were 10 people in line waiting to get to the next cashier, which is all computerized. Hello, it's a computer store. 
Yeah, absolutely. I was the only person not looking at their phone. And there were people 20 years older than I was. And there were people 30 years younger than I am. And I thought, man, that's just, that's really true. I always thought it was kind of a joke that everybody's on their phone all the time. And um, all of a sudden I got really self-righteous and I felt really cool because I wasn't on my phone. Just <laughs> scrolling through looking for Noir Inc., you know, I thought I'll do that later at home. Well, you know, if they're looking for Noir Inc., then feel free to look in your phone for as long as you want. But I should, uh, have, I should have tapped him on the shoulder and given him your card. Yeah, there you go. That's it. <laughs> Checks in the mail. Checks in the mail. <laughs> well, to wrap this up, which I hate to do, if someone was trying to learn how to get better at the craft of making pictures, what's the one sentence you could encapsulate and tell them they need to do? Draw. I'll do better than that. I'll just give you that one word. That's I like the it. Uh, that's the the entirety of advice that I think anyone who's serious could give someone looking to improve at the at the craft because that's that's the underpinning of everything. It's that practice day in and day out. Draw in your sketchbook, draw all the time, and uh, you'll learn what you need to learn. I liked your answer, and you used another magic word, practice. Artists have to practice just like musicians, just like writers, just like dancers, just like uh, athletes. You need to practice. Absolutely. That's the, the whole game, and it never ends. Vincent, thanks for hanging out with me today. I enjoyed our conversation as always. Thank you for having me, my friend.